Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we are going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler and talking about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writer Swai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hi. All right, so Peter and Brad cannot be with us today, uh, but I think they'll be back in full swing next week. So in the meantime, let's dive into the water cooler, guys. Let's do, go to our first section, which is what we've been doing. Jacob, I know you've been having, man, a, a rough time of it down there in Texas. Do so you want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, I don't know how much I want to say, or I mean, it's just been an onslaught of bad stuff. Uh, apocalyptic hellscape <laughs> nonsense hitting me and my family and my friends and my state and my town just nonstop. I mean, you probably, you know, if you don't live in Texas, you probably heard about the snowstorms that hit a few weeks ago, uh, which is why I was away from Slash Film for an entire week because I didn't have power and I didn't have water. And it's very strange because when I was in the midst of disaster, when the roads were so iced over, I couldn't leave my home when I could see my breath in my house. When I was, um, when I was collecting snow and trying to melt it to get water. Um, like when, when all of that was happening, when we were lighting a bunch of candles and jury rigging a metal pot over them to collect the heat, to radiate our room, uh, not radiate <laughs> to a uh, heat up, uh, our living room. So we could actually be comfortable. Um, like when all of that was happening, I was strangely unfazed. I was committed to survival and survival alone, trying to make sure that I was safe, my wife was safe, our pets were safe. Uh, my internet was down, my phone network was crashed. So I did not know the, what was going on in the outside world. Um, I could not access the internet or make coherent phone calls for most of the week. And once was happening, like I said, I just was not stressed about it at all i was just sort of in the moment and i realized that if things get really, really bad my survival mode can kick in and i would be fine uh but when power came back and when water came back it became a process of not 
trusting that things were okay again, not trusting that I was okay, that people were okay, that I was safe again. And I saw a lot of local Austin-based counselors and therapists like writing notes on social media saying that if you are feeling like this, if you don't feel safe, you don't feel okay, that's normal. And I mean, there are so many different degrees of trauma and PTSD. I don't mean to equate what I went through with what other people have gone through, but I'm just now starting to feel okay a few weeks after this happened, just now finally starting to feel safe, like not waking up in the middle of the night, wondering if the power was out, uh, not like constantly worrying and freaking out and on the verge of tears because of wondering what's going to go wrong next. And it really put in perspective about how when people who've experienced so much worse, like so much worse survival situations, whether it be, you know, a combat zone or something along those lines, why that messed them up for so long, because I was without, I was, under extreme stress and trauma for a week, but I was still in my home and I still walked away wearing these scars that are just now starting to go away. So I can live my life normally again. And it really, what I've, what I felt and endured is so minor compared to other, what other people have, but it still slammed into me psychologically in a way that I didn't see coming and I didn't know I could feel this way. Uh, so it really, for the first time in my life, I think I, I, I understand what people who have genuine PTSD must feel like, because I maybe felt like 1% of that, uh, and, and I'm healing from it. And I'm trying to comprehend going through so much worse and having to live with that for so much longer. And I hope this doesn't sound self-serving or self-aggrandizing, um, but it was it really sort of refocused my entire life <laughs> and refocused how I view what people go through and how they endure and how and what they feel like when, on the other side of a bad situation. I don't know if any of this makes sense or is interesting, but I wanted to speak to it. No, it does. It makes total sense. Um, yeah, man, my, my heart goes out to you and your family. How, how did your pets do during that? I, I was, that was like one of the things that I was thinking about a lot during, you know, seeing all these like uh, photos of water frozen to people's ceiling fans and all that kind of stuff just thinking about you know the the animals who live in you know inside those homes um how did how did your pets handle that situation uh that was a big worry because there were lots of stories of people's animals dying in their arms from the cold in their houses um we um we've never been ones to keep our pets at distance they're allowed on the couch they're allowed in the bed uh so it literally would be we'd put the dogs under covers with us the cats under covers with us and we just shared our body warmth. We all, like, my wife and I pretty much never left this. We always shared the same room if possible, and our pets would follow us around. And, you know, usually the cats are very aloof and would go off and do their own thing for large chunks of the day, but they would go stay with us and stay as close as they could until the power came back. Man, well, I'm, I'm glad that you and them and your wife and, and everybody, um, you know, are, are, uh, are okay and sort of made it through that, that hellish experience. Um, uh, I don't really know how to move on from that. So, HT, uh, <laughs> the what transi- have you the been transition doing? to be that I'm okay right now. People <laughs> had a far worse than me. Um, Texas is, is, is in, this, in the news again for other terrible reasons. So, um, but it, it it really sucks. But what does not suck is that HT had a cool interview. There's your there's segue. Yes, thank you, Jacob. <laughs> If I could give you a big virtual hug, Jacob, I could. And if I could give this interview subject that I, a big virtual hug, I would as well. There you go. Another transition. Nice. Um, so I got to interview Kelly Marie Tran for Riot and the Last Dragon, which hits Disney Plus premiere and theaters this 
Friday. Um, and this was a really big, exciting deal for me. Um, Kelly Marie Tran, uh, since she was announced as one of the stars of Star Wars The Last Jedi, uh, has been sort of a a real a beacon for Vietnamese American representation in Hollywood for me. And I was just really excited to get some FaceTime with her. Um, and by FaceTime, I mean digital like zoom facetime um and it's not one of my best interviews uh the interview which of which you can read on slashfilm.com because i only got uh 10 minutes with her but at the same time i did get to talk to her a little bit and just kind of express how uh, important she is to people like me who you know have very few vietnamese american sort of actors and celebrities to see on on the screen uh more so now than before but uh it was just uh i i got a little emotional just telling her how important she was and how i uh, i think the work that she's doing is really uh good and and um and and uh that it's just kind of to reach out to her after the t- the terrible onslaught of abuse that she received uh in aftermath of the last jedi and uh, i think she appreciated i don't know i hope so anyways i teared up a little bit while talking to her so that was a, a really big deal for me. Um, yeah, and you can and you can read that interview, uh, which does not include the cheering up or uh, her greeting me in Vietnamese at first, which was really nice, but then me saying that I don't speak Vietnamese and having that little thing. So yeah, um, you can check that interview out on Slash Film. And I just wanted to give a shout out to Kelly Marie Tran, who is a lovely, lovely, lovely person. That's really cool. I'm going to link to that interview in the show notes. So if you want, you can open up your podcast device and and just uh, go directly to that page uh, from there. So let's move into what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading recently? Well, my original plan was when I was snowed in for a week with no power. I was like, I'm going to read so much. I'm going to just pick up a big stack of books and read. I only read one book. It was a very short book because... Literally the second I started reading anything, I'm like, oh god, what's going to go wrong? Moment, take my eyes off the world. Um, well, I ended up reading the Last Unicorn, the uh, fantasy novel from 1968 from author uh, Peter S. Beagle. It's probably best known because it was adapted into an animated film in the 80s. And I recently had a weird kick where I said, I want to read a bunch of fantasy novels uh, that were later adapted into 80s movies. Maybe there's a post there, so I have to like I have this in the Princess Bride Never Ending Story. Uh, it's part of a personal project may become something may not i don't know um this one was first and it's such an interesting book it reads a lot like the hobbit you know uh the tolkien's you know first book less Lord of the rings more hobbit and that it's feels very much like a traditional classic fairy tale but there's a real air of melancholy through it it is very much about stories and how we perceive the world versus how it actually is and as somebody who watched the animated film as a kid uh, I was impressed by how sad and moving the book was uh, compared to the uh, movie, which I don't remember having as much an emotional impact on me. So I'm curious, uh, are we, as a podcast, do, do we remember The Last Unicorn in the movie? Or have any of you read the book, or am I alone in all of this? Jacob, The Last Unicorn is one of my favorite books as a kid. Oh. <laughs> and I also adore the animated movie. I have a an art print of The Last Unicorn that was made by Scott C. So I am so happy that you got around to reading the book. And what you precisely said about that air of melancholy to it, that sort of sadness that um, permeates the book is the reason that it was one of my favorites as a kid. 
And the the movie, while beautiful, doesn't exactly have that. It's it's it does kind of touch on um, that idea of the last unicorn, that idea of the magic almost disappearing from the world. But it's almost plays more like a it plays up some of the more scary and um, terrifying and and fantastical version uh, elements of the book. But the book itself feels very much like an ode to uh, that that disappearing magic. And um, I am. I just I love it so much, and I'm really happy you you read it. I am too. I'm, I feel like if anybody on this podcast would have a reaction to this, it would be you. Uh, but I also have started reading, but not finished yet. Uh, True Believer: The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee by Abraham Reisman, and this biography uh, has been not under scrutiny, but had a little tempest in teapot because somebody who used to work with Stan Lee at Marvel wrote a did an interview with a Hollywood Reporter where he essentially said the book is full of lies. Um, but uh, I'm more willing to believe uh, Reisman's writing over that interview because this is an incredibly compelling book that has like is not interested in painting Stanley as being jolly Marvel mascot everybody loved. He he's a human being who made all kinds of mistakes, and his life before and after Marvel is full of contradictions and harrowing moments. And one of the ongoing trends here, and something that like the facts back this up. Uh, he just lied a lot. Stanley lied about about things he did as a kid. He lied about things he did as an adult. He surrounded himself with people who fed him those lies. And when people always say there's no proof that you know he took more credit than he was earned for co-creating Marvel characters, um, like the evidence is in the fact that literally every single story he's ever told, people have fact-checked it, and there's usually something incorrect going on with it. And I'm not saying Stanley isn't important. He's one of the most important figures of the 20th century. And his uh, his work as you know editor of Marvel Comics, running those that that team, making these characters come to life, super vital. He would have been important no matter what. Uh, but True Believer is very interested in really exploring what kind of man was Stanley actually be beneath you know the glasses and the mustache and the you know smile from all the Marvel movies. And the entry is darker than you than I think even I expected. Uh, Chris, you said you. I'm not sure you said you started this, but you bought this, right? Yeah, I haven't downloaded on my uh, Kindle, but I have not started it yet. But I, I'm very excited to read it, especially after the things you've said. Yeah, um, I recommend it a lot. I mean, like if if you want only cloudy, fun memories of Stanley being a joyous guy who who co-created Spider-Man, then this is not the book for you. This is a book for people who genuinely, seriously want to understand Stanley as, as an actual human being. And you should definitely uh, read it alongside Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, a book that a uh, different author written quite some time ago, uh, but those two together give such a fascinating portrait of what Marvel Comics actually was and why Stanley is a troubling figure in addition to being an inspiring, important one. So that's True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stanley. It's really good. Cool. Uh, all right, let's go into what we've been watching. HT, Chris, and I had a chance to watch Raya and the Last Dragon. Uh, HT, let's start with you. What did you think about this new Disney animation movie? So you can check out my review on SlashFilm.com for my full thoughts, but I spoke briefly about uh, my reservations about Raya and the Last Dragon when I saw some of the early footage of the film. And I spoke about the my sort of dissatisfaction with uh, – bids for diversity that aren't explicitly rooted in specific stories. Uh, And perhaps that's my own personal experience that I feel a greater connection to stories that are more specific and in that specificity, 
specificity, find a universality to them, such as films like Pixar's Coco or The Farewell. And I had that same feeling watching Raya and the Last Dragon, uh, which is, you know, Disney's first Southeast Asian inspired movie. And they made, they very much built up that um, cultural inspiration from the many countries that make up the geographic region of Southeast Asia, uh, one of which is Vietnam, uh, my the country from which my, my family hails. And um, so I had a lot writing into this movie. And while I think that that it's a very you know, beautifully made, really well-researched film uh, and with so many familiar like iconography and imagery and characterization that I recognize within my own family and my own culture, um, I find uh, it's just um, it's less inspired than it is flavored. It feels like a part of the film that isn't as pivotal to it as I feel like it could be. It just feels like a another texture to the film that elevates it from the uh, sort of more typical fantasy epic that Raya and the Last Dragon is, um, which is fine. It's it's like it's nice, you know. It's kind of like there are these little elements sprinkled throughout that you're like, oh, you can recognize that. And while it's nice to see some of that on screen, it's not the same as feeling like you yourself are on screen. So those are my sort of reservations with that. That being said, Ryan the Last Dragon is stunning. It's probably one of the most beautiful things that Disney animation has put out. I think particularly of the fight scenes, which I was really, really wowed by. Um, it's hard hitting and um, sort of uh, almost raw and grimy in a way that Disney animation has never been. Um, I there's some there are some stories uh, about from the directors saying that or joking that the movie could have been R-rated and seeing the fight scenes play out as they do I almost could believe that because there's a ferocity to those fight scenes that are just, that feel almost terrifying in a way and they're really really beautifully animated and um you know the landscapes the tundras are really beautifully animated too and there's a wonderful emotional um climax to the movie that just moved me to tears and um that those those parts really work for me but there is this strain of wacky comedy that I just couldn't get behind and it felt like the kind of comedy that you would find in a DreamWorks movie it felt, it felt almost like a Madagascar style comedy specifically with uh this con baby and her like min her little minion monkey minions and while you know Disney is not above that kind of comedy it just felt at odds to me with the rest of the movie so I I couldn't get on board with that and that's why it wasn't like as perfect and as great for me as it could have been but really beautiful movie Ryan the Last Dragon is and it's you know it's great to see a, a movie that is representing a region from which my country is in Mm-hmm. Chris, what did you think? I liked it. I don't. Have, I don't have much more to say. Um, it's it's a very nice, cute movie, uh, and um, I was really impressed by just the animation style in general, which is so good that it's it's almost distracting because like the backgrounds and uh, not so much the characters, but maybe like you know the way they move and stuff. Like everything looks so hyper realistic a part of me is like why isn't this just live action like it's just so it's at a point where like we're we're like crossing the uncanny valley into 
some other valley. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's just, it's, it's like so gorgeous and realistic that I was almost like distracted by how, how good everything looked. But, um, is there a specific example that you can think of Chris that you're just honestly, just the whole movie in general, just the, the way the, the scenery and, and, uh, the, the landscapes and every, everything, the characters, every place the characters go just looks so hyper realistic that I was just caught off guard by. I think it's like one of the best looking Disney movies in like recent memory. But, um, yeah, I, I think there, it's a bit formulaic. It it like fits into like a Disney formula, but that's not such a, a bad thing. I, I enjoyed watching it, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I have not looked at the critical response to this movie. So I'm, I'm curious if I'm going to be like a huge outlier here and saying that I was kind of, you know, not super high on this movie. Um, I, 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 I kind of feel bad, especially because it's it's one of those movies that like, uh, I mean, clearly HC, you just talked about how much this movie like means to you and, and your family and, and all of that on this like personal representational I mean, level. I say it means to me, but it doesn't completely like meet the bar that I wished it could. Right. So I, yeah, I say I think, all that with criticisms. Well, I think like, you know, part of, um, part of my, I, I think I also found myself yearning for a little bit more specificity. Um, I think that's that's a good way to put it. Like, you know, the, the kingdom of, um, what is it called? Kumandra in this movie is like uh, split up into all these different regions. And each region is clearly supposed to be representative of a different Southeastern Asian country or culture, right? And, and I don't it's, think it is. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I was thinking I, like it sort of looked like, like... Yeah, I don't think they have like specific... Uh, parallels they're just it just feels a little, little pick and choosy in terms of like the types of things that they reference and it's kind of scattered throughout all of them so I don't think that <laughs> that it, it does that I thought like the the geography in certain spots you know was meant to evoke you know like Thailand in certain sections and then there are there are parts where like uh you know there's this like light city uh or or the city with, with a lot of like brightly colored um uh lights and and you see it at night it's like this big market environment and i sort of feel like that is like a different kind of i guess flavor to use that word and and there are um i don't know it just felt like the movie never quite uh like went far enough in in creating a in in creating a believable place in any of those it did sort of feel like okay we're just mixing all of these little you know, visual signifiers and little aspects together here and there. And I never really got a great sense of like what each kingdom or, or, you know, faction or whatever was all about other than just like these visual signifiers that were very, it just felt like shorthand to me. And I wish the movie had time or interest in, you know, actually digging down a little bit deeper and and sort of exploring some of that a little bit more. Um, The character of Raya, well, I, I really liked Kelly Marie Tran as, you know, her voice work as that character. I feel like on the as, as written she's a little bit boring um and i guess that that probably applies to several other disney characters kind of like chris you're just saying like it sort of feels a little bit like it fits into that formula and i think you could probably levy that same criticism at, at a bunch of uh disney heroes i guess um but uh yeah i don't know i, I just i i didn't really find myself like com- connecting emotionally to a lot of the stuff here and i think um i I guess maybe it's just because I saw soul so recently I was much more blown away by the, um, 
visual clarity and like uh, realism and and th- that kind of stuff uh, in that movie. Maybe, maybe it's just because I'm more familiar, like personally with like, you know, city environments and stuff. And there's a lot of like interior inside shots of, you know, I, I think of that one shot of um, the person, the the musician in, in Seoul holding that saxophone that really, to me, just looked like completely ind- indistinguishable from a live action shot. And I didn't really get that feeling in watching Ryan the Last Dragon and I think it's because so much of the movie takes place outdoors and maybe I'm just not familiar or as familiar with like the um, yeah like the the exact visual landscapes that they're trying to um, trying to evoke here so uh, maybe that has something to do with it but anyway I'm just you know just sounding off for all these reasons why uh, the movie didn't quite click for me but um, you know it it was like enjoyable enough uh, especially for um, you know a, a movie that's going to be available on, on Disney plus probably soon. And, um, you know, in, in like a free capacity, uh, and it's definitely worth watching, but, um, yeah, I don't, I, I yeah, it's a, it's a tough one for me to talk about, but, um, I don't know if any of that resonated with anybody else on this podcast, but, uh, if not, we could just move on to the next thing. So, um, Jacob, what have you been watching? I haven't been watching much because, as mentioned earlier, any time I try to watch anything new, I just would get distracted and upset. So I spent most of my uh, time recently playing video games, which I'll discuss soon enough. Uh, but I did, my wife and I did uh, get very drunk. Instead of watching horror movies, we watched The Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons, the Ron Howard directed uh, adaptations of the Dan Brown novel starring Tom Hanks as. Uh, Professional uh, symbol expert Robert Langdon, who solves mysteries <laughs> about the ancient world in modern day, in sort of neutered Indiana Jones fashion. Uh, these movies, I, I guess here's my here's my question: Is anybody else here on, on this podcast? Because we're all you know within a few years of each other. Was anybody else swept up, like swept the hell up in the Da Vinci Code craze when that book first published? Did you read it? Uh, did, did, was anybody convinced it was good? Uh, who who else vividly remembers how that book was everywhere in 2004? I remember uh, how it was everywhere, but I definitely was not swept up with the craze. Chris, I, did you read that book? I didn't. Re- I worked at Barnes and Noble, so I I remember the the hype and all that shit. But I never I never read the book. No. Aisha, did you have any uh, any specific memories about the about the craze? I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh there. no, it's okay. I mean, my very specific memory is just watching the movies and thinking how bad Tom Hanks' wig was. So, really, nothing <laughs> of, too, of value to add. Uh, Jacob, I took the the full deep dive. I, I I wouldn't go as far as to say I was obsessed, but I read every book that Dan Brown had published up to that point. I was like very on board with this because I grew up you know, a lot of people grow up talking about how Star Wars was like the movie that changed their life. And I feel like Indiana Jones is probably more in that camp for me. So like just the idea of, you know, this sort of globe trotting mystery kind of thing. And I was at like the right age where I, I wasn't able, I hadn't read enough stuff to know like that it it wasn't actually written very well. And I was just sort of swept away by the like propulsiveness of the storytelling, which I think is kind of undeniable in, in all of those uh, stories, regardless of like the, the quality of the prose, you know? Um, So I, I read all of the books and then very quickly discovered that, you know, of the, I think five or, so books of his that I had read at that point, the pretty much the exact same 
thing takes place in each one. Like, you know, there is a, uh, it, it's like an Agatha Christie kind of formula um, that, you know, you can, you can put a new skin on it, but like the bones are the same kind of thing. Um, even within the, the Da Vinci Code trilogy or quadrilogy or whatever it's ballooned out into now, you can sort of see like the same kinds of character archetypes and like what, you know, what ultimately happens. And there's like a little twist and this person is actually responsible for the, th- the thing the whole time and all of that, like that kind of um, the bones of that storytelling are the same in a lot of Dan Brown's work. But uh, yeah, I read all of that in, you know, from like 2004 to 2006 and then have not thought about any of it ever since. <laughs> I'm so excited because now I can actually ask you some questions about these movies. Um, I'm hoping you can help me uh, elucidate. Uh, because I read The Da Vinci Code back in the day, and like you said, it's a great airport book. It reads super easy, super fast, not great literature, but it's really easy to get, to get caught up in it. Uh, didn't read anything beyond that, though. But what strikes me about Da Vinci Code and, and Angels and Demons, like I said, both Ron Howard movies, both adaptations, is that Da Vinci Code being the massive best-selling novel, the one that was a phenomenon, the movie that made a lot more money than its sequels, is barely a movie. I mean, there's like five sequences in the books of people talking in rooms, so the movie is just a big scene in one location, they run or drive to another location. There's a big scene in that location. It can literally, it can, you can summarize the movie's events in a handful of sentences. Whereas angels and demons, uh, have, have not read the book and the movie's real dumb. It's a real dumb movie. It's like Michael Bay dumb, but it is so full of events. It is so insane. It has, uh, stolen antimatter bombs, priests being kidnapped, a conspiracy to elect a new Pope, uh, uh, saw-like traps spread throughout Rome and the Vatican City. Uh, it is a, an assassin, like shooting people and like trying and drowning people. Like Da Vinci Code, it feels painfully stretched out into a movie. It is not. It's, it's a. It's, it is as uncinematic as it gets. But yet, it was the big deal, the big sell, the big movie. Whereas Angels and Demons is a better movie because it is so wild and so silly and so over the top and so much is happening constantly. But Angel, but Angel and Demons still lives in the shadow of Da Vinci Code, even though. It's better. So Ben, mm-hmm. is Angels and Demons the better book as well? I think yes. Um, and and I think it's because that book came out first. It came out three years before Da Vinci Code. And it, it was the first one in the, the Robert Langdon series. And um, uh, Brown had written two other books. Uh, or well, Let's see. No, I guess just one. He had published one other book at that point. So it really, it kind of feels like, um, you know, how sometimes like when people make a first thing it's like they just throw all of their ideas that have been bottled up you know in, in there and that's really kind of what angels and demons felt like it felt like he had been you know sitting on this robert langdon character and this idea and like these you know the the conspiracies with the church and the symbols and traps and all that kind of stuff that you were just talking about um you know for years and years and it finally just like exploded out of him and then you know three years later he kind of like just tacked on a follow-up with the Da Vinci Code. And that's the one because of the religious imagery and and the sort of controversial aspects of it that really blew up in a huge way. And I think, I think a lot of people felt the way that you did about the movies, about the books. Like they read the Da Vinci Code and then went back and read Angels and Demons. And at least I did anyway. It was like, oh, wow, this is actually like a much better story. But um, yeah, I have, I've not read any of the, the further uh Robert Langdon books, but I remember distinctly feeling that way about those first two. Yeah, I think I'm going to see Inferno, the third movie, the one, the one that nobody wanted is, is currently streaming. I'll I'll check back in, but I will say this much: one pivotal choice that they make is that in the Vinci Code they try to give Tom Hanks that really bad hair and make him really cool and suave, which is Tom Hanks. He's always been America's dad, even when he was young. He's America's dad. <laughs> Whereas in Angel and Demons, they give him his regular haircut. 
let him act like a nerdy dad stuck inside this conspiracy as opposed to making him suave at all. And Angel Demons is a better movie for a lot of reasons. Like I said, it's real dumb. I cannot get over it. I cannot say enough. Angel Demons is, is real stupid, but it is a, it's actually entertaining in a way that, that Da Vinci Code is not. But before we end this, I need to know, Chris, you must have an opinion on these movies. I need to know them. Uh, I I saw <laughs> Da Vinci Code when it came out. I, I can't remember anything that happens in the movie other than Tom Hanks's wig. And also the beginning, like someone is getting killed in the Louvre and as they're dying, they like write a message in blood or something everywhere. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? I didn't see angels of demons one year when I was in Toronto for TIFF, the, the Toronto Netflix, Netflix in, in Canada has different stuff than it's on America. I remember they had Inferno and I was like up late writing reviews and I was like, I'm going to put this on in the background as I write. And I just remember it being like really, really stupid. And like, I remember like there's a huge goofy twist at the end that doesn't make sense at all. And I was just like, who are these movies for? Like, I don't understand what, like, they're not like, you know, I can get down with, with goofy shit. Like give me national treasure any day of the week, but at least those those movies are fun. Like, there's nothing entertaining going on in in these Dan Brown movies. So I just I'm I'm baffled as to why they kept making them, and I'm glad they're done now. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember uh, I fell into a Wikipedia hole about Dan Brown after watching these. I read some synopsis about his most re- recent Dan Brown book, which is about computers, computer science, computer imagery, and I realized, oh my god, Dan Brown went insane. So I, I, oh, think, no. I, I don't remember what it's called, but look up the synopsis for the most recent Dan Brown, Robert Langdon book. Anyway, enough about all of this. Enough about Dan Brown, Robert Langdon. Sorry to hijack the podcast for, for this reason, because <laughs> I'm done. That's all I watch. Uh, Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I finally caught up with WandaVision. I'm not going to say too much because I wrote a big thing on Slashon.com and I want everyone to read it. Uh, but, I will add that to the show notes. But um, I liked it. I I. I think it's good, but I wish it were better. That's that's pretty much where I fall on the line. I think I, I think it, it, I like what it's trying to do. I don't think it's as successful as it should be. Uh, and then I also watched Muppets Most Wanted, which I also wrote about on SlashFilm.com a few weeks ago. And um, I, don't, I don't know. What I'm doing. Uh, I remember when this when this came out, there was this sort of like muted reaction to it. And I had seen the previous movie, the you know, the Muppets, which was sort of like the, the big revival movie that brought the Muppets back and it had Jason Siegel and Amy Adams. And I loved that movie. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to see a new Muppet movie. But every sort of every reaction to Muppets Most Wanted was really like blah. And people weren't saying it was bad. They were just like, this isn't as good. And, you know, Jason Siegel wasn't back and he was sort of like the driving force between the previous movie. And everyone seemed to say like, because he's gone, this movie isn't as good. And I was just like, eh, I guess I'll, I'll see that eventually. And I never got around to watching it. And, uh, you know, it's on Disney plus with a, with pretty much every other Muppet thing, except Muppets take Manhattan, which is not on there. And I don't understand why. And I would like them to fix that. Please. Walt Disney's frozen head fix this. But I, I was like, you know what? I've, I've never seen Muppets most wanted. I'm saying this to my wife, by the way, I'm not just saying it to myself like a lunatic, you know, I've never seen this. Let's watch it. So we put it on and God damn, this movie is so good. It's, I honestly think it's like one of the best Muppet movies. And I'm, I'm like angry that I, I let the, 
the muted reaction to it keep me from watching it when it came out because it's it's just really funny and the songs are great and honestly it feels more like a muppet movie than the than the muppets because the muppets is really more of like a reboot where it's like it's it's like we have to reintroduce all the muppets again we have to get them all back together again and there's a lot of focus on the human characters and muppets most wanted really focuses primarily on the Muppets and there's this new character who's, who's Constantine the world's most dangerous frog who looks exactly like Kermit except he has a, a mole and he's evil and everything this character does just had me laughing my ass off just because it, it's it's not like smart humor but it's so fucking funny like he keeps mispronouncing all the Muppets names like the plot of the movie is Constantine <laughs> sends Kermit to the gulag he like frames him for Kermit gets confused for Constantine and he gets sent to a Russian gulag while Constantine worms his way into the Muppet show. And none of the other Muppets realize this is not Kermit, even though it's, it's clearly someone doing a bad Kermit impersonation. And he's just constantly calling the Muppets by the wrong names. Like he calls Gonzo Zongo at one point and he calls, he calls Miss Piggy, Miss Pig. And those are not smart jokes, but just hearing him say that I was like, I was like laughing so hard. I was like weeping. It was so fucking funny. So <laughs> if, if you like me were like, ah, Muppets most wanted, no one seemed to like this. I'm going to, I'm going to skip it. I I'm telling you right now, you need to watch it because it, it's so goddamn good. And like, I've been walking around with the songs like stuck in my head ever since I watched it. It was like two or three weeks ago. It's really wow. good. It's uh, so good, guys. I mean, I was I, I saw us in theaters opening weekend, and I was like alone in the theater because nobody came out for the for Muppets Most Wanted. It's, it's a shame. It's like all you people who are like so excited for the Muppets, like we're, we're there for the first one, and you so you abandoned them for the yeah, follow up movie. That's another thing that really annoys me because this did not do well, and it like killed off the film franchise again. And it's like we could have been we could have had like three more Muppet movies by now. And they haven't been because no one bothered to see this. And I guess I'm part of the problem, too, because I didn't see it. And I'm sorry, Muppets. I will say that the original title for this movie, which was The Muppets Again, is a much better title. But it's also very, it's a very uh, dumb joke. And I appreciate that. Uh, Well, Chris, it sounds like you're speaking directly to me because I had the exact same experience where I just like read bad stuff about this movie and completely avoided it. So I guess I will add it to my list now. Uh, HD, what have you been watching? I saw Chaos Walking, which is the long-delayed Doug Lehman uh, dystopian movie starring Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley. And uh, it's not good. (laughs) This movie feels very much like the movie that has been plagued by troubles uh, for years in its production and has been stuck in that production limbo forever. Uh, I think we've, we've included it on like our, our most anticipated movies from the past couple years. And uh, it does not deserve that (laughs) because it feels very much like a leftover from the YA dystopian craze that, you know, Hunger Games and uh, Divergent was part of, um, but shockingly grim. It feels like Doug, Doug Lehman, who like took this concept and was like, how do I make it fresh and novel and something above the the rest of that those YA movies? And he decided to make it extremely violent and extremely not and are not fun to watch. It feels like there's a very humorless strain through this movie. 
and um, it it particularly plays out with the 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 animals in this film. Like for me, I am not um, completely like. Um, strict when it comes to, I don't know, this might sound bad for me, but I'm like, oh, you know, animal deaths aren't like a complete, um, I will, won't make me write off a movie completely uh, if it's done in a way that feels like it's uh, earned or not earned. Oh, no, I'm feeling, I don't sound like a dog hater or something. If it's, it's <laughs> done in a way that feels like it's right for the movie and mm-hmm. it's not, not something that's done like for shock factor and or like feels gross in a way. And here it feels very like it is both those things. It feels like it's for shock factor. It feels like it's for um, that grim uh, tone that this movie is trying to pursue. And I was I was honestly really put off and really shocked by not only one, but like two animal deaths that happened in this movie. And it really soured the movie for me. So Chris, do not watch this movie. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I will never watch this. I mean, I didn't want to watch it to begin with, but after hearing this, I, I'm like, yeah, it feels fuck like this for, movie. Yeah, yeah, it's just like it, it, it made me question who this movie was for because Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley give you know reliable performances. They feel very much like um, performances of leads who are readying themselves for a big YA franchise, and it's they're fine in it. But then the tone itself just feels so grim, and um displeasing to watch that uh, it just feels all at odds um, and it feels like a big waste of some of the great supporting stars that you have like you have Mads Mikkelsen you have Cynthia Erivo you have David Oyelowo um, some of like and Mads Mikkelsen wearing a really fantastic fur coat at that so I just um yeah I just I, I can't say that I, I enjoyed this movie and I can't say that Doug Lehman uh, achieves the sort of elevated why a dystopian um, film that he was obviously going for. So, Chaos Walking. <laughs> uh, Chris junk- joked this in the Slack, but I'm going to use it. More like Chaos Stumbling. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So, a skip for that one. Uh, it sounds like you liked the next movie a lot more. Yes. The next movie I watched. Uh, is Promare. Um, And this is a movie that came out in 2019. And it's an anime film that I had seen a couple trailers for and was really put off by those trailers. It's from Studio Trigger, which is a studio that has done uh, anime animated series like Kill la Kill. Um, I'm not really very familiar with their work, but they're they're held hailed as sort of like the 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 next exciting anime studio that does like some some really interesting experimental things with 3D animation. Um, but watching the trailers for Premiere, I remember being really put off and by its sort of aggressive use of color and movement and energy. And I was like, wow, that's way too much for me. But um, I decided to check it out because it was now on HBO Max and wow, this movie, yes, it's aggressive and yes, it's a lot, but wow, it's what a wonderful and uh, like exciting use of 3D animation merged with 2D animation. It's the first time I've been really wowed by a 3D animated movie uh, by Spider-Man and since Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It feels like there's a, a shared DNA in those movies, actually, especially in the way that uh, Promare um, kind of uses that sort of graphic 
almost comic booky style uh, with some and merges that with uh, 3D animation and also uses some more some more simplistic backgrounds as well. It feels almost like art deco in a way. And that all of that coming together into a movie that I really enjoyed watching and almost became too overwhelming for me, but uh, was just enough that I, I really enjoyed watching it. This is a movie that feels very style over substance, but I say that in a complimentary way because the story itself is like, you know, it's whatever. It's about, it's set in this uh, future sort of post-apocalyptic world. Not really though, but it's set in this future world where, um, like a large portion of the population of humans have uh, developed this mutation that gives them pyrokinetic powers and they call them, call themselves the burnish. And uh, they have uh, become sort of like a, a semi-terrorist organization, uh, lighting fires wherever they can. And um, it follows this group of firefighters uh, who set out to put out all these fires and everything. But the lead firefighter soon uncovers a conspiracy from uh, the government to use the burnish uh, and their abilities and uh, experiment on them in ways that are horrifying and all that thing. It's it's a very I don't I want to say standard anime story, which is like probably a whole other explanation. But it's it's a fine story. But the animation is wow wow wow. I yeah I was just kind of uh, jaw dropped by that entire thing. And it it is a movie that I don't know if I would recommend it to someone who who doesn't watch a lot of anime because it plays into a lot of anime sort of uh, trappings uh, in a way that feels somewhat like pretty fresh and exciting, but is a lot at the same time. But um, I, if you do like, uh, like if you are sort of on the fence with 3D animation, uh, I feel like Promare takes that media, takes that technology and really runs with it and shows like what, how it can be exciting and new and um, merge with that sort of t 2D anime experience. So that's Premiere streaming on HBO Max. Um, another movie I watched is uh, Space Sweepers, which got a little bit of uh, attention a couple weeks ago. I'm really late to all of these things that have people have been talking about on the internet, but Space Sweepers is a Korean space blockbuster. It's actually like the first Korean space blockbuster like space opera um from south korea and so there was like a lot of hype going into it because of that and uh it's it's a lot of fun it's playing on netflix now and it reminded me a lot of the cheesy spectacle of Guillermo del Toro's pacific rim meets the scrappy found family of guardians of the galaxy elements and uh it's a it's a fun time it's not you know an amazing movie but it, you can see that the South Korean industry is like really playing with uh, w what constitutes a space opera and really having fun with it. So it's a it's a real fun, di diverting watch. And uh, that's that's Space Sweepers now streaming on Netflix. Also, Richard Armitage is in it. it took me a long time to figure out who he was because he's like buried under all this facial hair. And I was like, that guy looks really familiar. Is that Richard Armitage? And it is. So... <laughs> There you go. Um, also, the actress from The Handmaiden is in it, uh, really chewing up the scenery as well. So if you guys are fans of of that, you can check her out in Space Sweepers. Uh, another movie that I watched is Beginning. And this is uh, the Georgian uh, sort of Oscar contender. It's on the shortlist from the, from, uh, for the Oscars. It's... Uh, a 
really, really slow burning uh, simmering movie about a, uh, a young woman who is the wife of a Jehovah's Witness preacher um, dealing with the fallout of a firebomb attack on their church by violent extremists. And um, when I say slow burning, it really is because it is almost completely without dialogue. It really dives into the interiority of this woman played by, and I'm going to butcher her name, Ia Sukitashvili. Um, often just letting the camera sit and watch and rest on her for long stretches of time. But it's a really hypnotic, mesmerizing, uh, beautifully made movie with really striking imagery that um, uh, really sticks, really stuck with me when I watched it. Um, and um, it's it's definitely a movie that you have to really concentrate on. But I like the way that it deals with uh, gender and religion and the ostrac ostracization that uh, the, the character, the main character feels on both counts. And uh, it's it's a film that, yeah, is, is definitely, I think, worth a watch. Uh, it's streaming now on Mubi, if you guys have that, but uh, which is also a channel I think that you can uh, get a free trial through Amazon Prime for. So that is beginning. Cool. Uh, I caught up finally with uh, Lupin, the French mystery thriller that is now streaming on Netflix that came out earlier this year. Um, we've talked about it a lot on this show already, so I won't go too long on it. But I, I will just say that, you know, conceptually, this this show, which is about this guy who is like inspired by the adventures of this fictional master thief and, and gentleman burglar, um, this guy like basically like uses all of the the cases from the books to pull off his own elaborate heists and things like that. That kind of idea seems like it could be just another case of Hollywood, like, you know, mining pieces of uh, intellectual property that um, are in the public domain. And, you know, so they don't have to pay for the rights to it and stuff. And, but this is actually really, really well executed all the way across the board. And I think Omar Sy, who plays the main character, does a great job in the show. And it's just, um, it's a it's a very short series so far. There's a, there's only been uh, five episodes. Um, more is, is I, I think, in production or post-production supposed to be released uh, in the middle of this year. Um, so I'm excited to see how the story continues. But there's a, a good mystery, you know, going through sort of under underneath the surface of the whole thing. Um forming like a, a backbone of the story and uh the heist stuff is really great and you know some of it is like predictable and and um a little uh disposable but i think even with those little you know slight qualms with a couple story points here and there i think the the show really like cruises on the the charisma of um omar sai and the just general like fun vibe of the show so uh that is lupon and is on netflix right now um HT, I think you mentioned to me a long time ago, or maybe not to me directly, but uh, on this podcast. So I feel like you're talking directly to me. A movie called Master Z Ip Man Legacy. Um, I think yeah. this was a few years ago where I watched all of the Ip Man movies, or at least the first three. I think there's been a fourth one since then, and I have not caught up with that one yet. Um, but I remember you you speaking highly of this movie, and I added it to my next Netflix queue and finally got around to watching it like a few days ago. Um, and I enjoyed this movie. It is, like I said, Master Z Ip Man Legacy is the movie. It is directed by uh, Yin Wu Ping, who is like a legend in the Hong Kong you know, martial arts cinema world. He was the action choreographer um, for movies like The Matrix and Crouchy Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and has directed a bunch of movies, uh, you know, in his own right as well. Um, 
And you can tell that this movie was directed by somebody who absolutely knows what the hell they're doing when it comes to fight sequences. Um, I think I liked this more than, I don't know if I could say all of the Ip Man movies, but a majority of them, because it seems to be having a little bit more fun than those films. I love Donnie Yen in the Ip Man movies, but his character is so stoic and serious. Um, And this movie just seems to have a little bit more of a, like an attitude to it. Um, to kind of, <laughs> I don't know if that if that makes sense, but uh, it, it it sort of has like a little bit more of a modern flair. Um, the fight sequences are all you know really fun to watch. Dave Bautista plays a villain in this, and he is just this hulking beast. It it reminds me of like you know in, in Guardians of the Galaxy because there are so many different comic book characters that all feel really larger than life. It's kind of tough to. Uh, remember just how huge Dave Bautista is because, you know, he's standing next to a a nine foot talking tree or whatever. Um, But watching a movie like this, it's so clear, just like the, the brute physicality of this guy. And, um, you know, he, he has a couple of memorable little fight sequences in this film too. Um, But Max Zhang, I think is how you pronounce his name is the the star of this movie. And he, it's about him and his kid. um, And it's, it's a spinoff of the, Ip Man movies and um I just I liked the the father-son dynamic there and um they encounter uh a like a local gang that is run by uh Michelle Yeoh so that was that's always great to see um I saw before I clicked on it that Tony Jaa is in this movie and I was excited because I liked the Ong Bak movies when they came out all those years ago but Tony Jaa is only in this movie prep for probably like four minutes or something so it's not like a, a big uh appearance from him but um, yeah, if you're looking for just like a solid uh, movie with like, you know, fun fight sequences, there's just really great moment. HC, I don't know if you remember the scene, but there's a, a moment where um, in, in this bar area, I think they call it Bar Street, uh, there are all these uh, neon signs that are outside in this, this uh, I guess, corridor, this big like hanging over the streets, sort of forming a canopy. And there's this fight scene where these characters are like jumping from sign to sign. It's really... Uh, really over the top and really kind of ridiculous, but kind of rules at the same time. So Yeah, um, I love that. <laughs> I, yeah. I remember that scene exactly, and I do agree with you. It feels like – I feel like the Ip Man movies, my problem with them is that they all start to feel kind of the same, and they all feel very rote. But this movie feels like a movie, you know? <laughs> if that yeah. makes sense. They just like – it's just going all out with the visuals and the action and even some of the emotion. And I really, really enjoyed it for that. And I my hot take – I mean – I. Maybe this is a hot take. This is my favorite Ip Man movie, maybe barring the first Ip Man. But there's a there's a really interesting thing where I think that the Ip Man movies really want to become like a superhero movie in a way. They really they really struggle with the, the biopic barriers that mm-hmm. the Ip Man um, story kind of limits them with. And I think Ip Master Z, Ip Man Legacy, is just like, we're just going to become like a superhero movie. We're going to do what we want. And I, that's why I really like it <laughs> for yeah. that reason. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. Um, and it also has it, it sort of gets into some of the same like politics as the Ip Man movies. Like, it's all about like a corrupt police force run by white people, and and you know like the people rising up and and all that kind of stuff. So like, there's definitely a through line there, like a thematic through line. But um, yeah, this movie just it seems to be willing to have some more fun with everything. So uh, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. So that is streaming on Netflix right now. It's called Master Z Ip Man Legacy. Uh, so I took one recommendation from HT. I also took a recommendation from Chris and watched The Silent Partner, which is a movie you talked about not too long ago, um, which uh, stars Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer. 
and it was directed by Daryl Duke and written by Curtis Hansen, who won an Oscar for writing the screenplay for LA Confidential. Uh, this movie came out in the late 70s, and um, man, like Elliot Gould is just like in the groove, in the pocket in this movie. This is like peak Elliot Gould period, and uh, he looks great and his character is, is so great. And like the, a lot of the characters in the movie at, at a certain point, just like spend five minutes talking about how much they want to bang him like because he just looks so good. Uh, he, he like essentially stops a robbery. Um, there's a guy uh, played by Christopher Plummer who dresses up like Santa Claus and tries to rob his bank. He plays a bank teller and then he goes on TV and just does like a you know, a typical little like local news story. And everybody's like, Oh my God, we saw you on TV. You looked incredible <laughs> like for like minutes and minutes on end. Um, so it's, it's pretty funny that way. But uh, yeah, man, uh, Christopher Plummer, like I know he just passed away and a lot of people were talking about his work in movies like sound of music and knives out and everything. And I'd never seen this film before, but this is like a totally different side to him where he is just a complete scumbag and like, um, super threatening and um, really uh, like unnerving uh, uh, in terms of just the screen presence that he brings to this character. Um, so I, I really enjoyed watching, especially that the whole movie is like this, this cat and mouse game between Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer. And um, these women get caught up in the middle of it. And the movie is not as interested in their characters and really kind of throws them to the side and does not really care to uh, explore too much about them or what they mean to the the male characters in the movie i guess you can expect such a an approach since this came out and like i said in 1978 so um if you're looking for a movie that like you know aligns with modern day uh, uh mentalities or whatever this is not going to be it but I, I really enjoyed this movie um chris did you have any other uh additional thoughts about the silent partner no it, it rules it's, it's a great movie um i had like not actually even heard of this movie until i think like yeah, last year I saw a bunch of people talking about it because it had just come onto the Criterion channel around Christmas time. And everyone was like, this is a great unconventional Christmas movie because it's like set during Christmas. And I was like, I'll give this a chance. And uh, yeah, I was I was not expecting it to be what it was. It's it's funny, but it's really dark. Like there's a really unexpected beheading scene in the movie that like, yes. I was like, I probably shouldn't have said that because I just spoiled it, but I was like, holy shit. I was not expecting there to be a beheading in this Elliot Gould movie, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's really good. It's, it's, it's nasty and it's grimy, but it's also Canadian. It's a very Canadian movie because it's was shot in Canada and it, like most of the movie takes place in this like Canadian mall. So yeah, I was wondering when it first started, I was like, why have I never heard of any of the stores in this? And then I realized it took place in Toronto. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, great. Yeah. This movie is streaming right now on the Criterion channel. So if you want to uh, watch that, I encourage you to do so. It's, it's very, very good. It's called the silent partner. And then finally I started watching the Nick, which uh, I guess is another Chris recommendation. Um, Chris and Jacob both were, were convincing me to watch this movie uh, because the Nick, which originally aired on Cinemax is now, uh, has now been added to the HBO max library of, uh, of content there. And um, my wife and I are, I think seven episodes into it right now. And God, this is such a great show. Like I'm so mad at myself for not watching this earlier. Um, it is a, it's a tough watch for, I am, I imagine it would be a tough watch for a lot of people because um, if you have, if you don't have the stomach for, um, you know, surgery sequences and like, uh, yeah, like gore in that context, you know, a lot of this movie is 
people getting cut open and, you know, organs being removed and just blood spurting everywhere. And it's very realistic in that way. Um, and, and sort of like horrifyingly so in certain parts. And I, I'm guessing a lot of people are not going to have the stomach for that, but the drama that surrounds those uh, surgery sequences is so engrossing and the direction is so incredible and the production design is unreal. It really feels like this is a show that, um, that, it cost a lot of money to make and and didn't just shoot on a back lot. It really feels like they like it's set in a real tactile place, even though I have no idea how it was actually shot or how much of it is like enhanced by CG or whatever. But um, there's such a, a definitive sense of time and place uh, in the show. And Steven Soderbergh directs all the episodes and um, it just like does an incredible job. Like you really feel like the camera is in the hands of somebody who knows exactly what he's doing at all times. And I, uh, want, to, I want to cut in here and put out that not only does he direct it, he does all the cinematography and he edited the entire show too. So wow. he's a machine, man. Yeah. Unreal. I knew that he like operated his own camera. Cause he does that. I think for all of his movies or, or for most of them anyway. Um, but I didn't know about the editing too. And I guess that makes sense though. Cause I just watched uh, the seventh episode of the first season has a, uh, well, two, I guess, sex scenes in it. One of them is very, very reminiscent of the sex scene from uh, Out of Sight between uh, George Clooney and uh, Jennifer Lopez's character. And that's like one of the, you know, the sort of like touchstone sex scenes in modern American cinema history. Like a lot of people look at that, you know, if you ever read any rankings or anything like that, um, a lot of people point to that as like a, a, a seminal moment. And I think um, this moment in the Nick was like very, very, uh, you know, the, the reference there is very clear. So um, I, I cannot recommend the show highly enough. Although, like I said, you just sort of have to be like in the right frame of mind to uh, to know that you're going to see some shit when you, when you watch the show. But um, it is like, you know, among the best things that I've seen in a very long time. So The Nick is streaming on HBO Max right now. Um, Jacob, what have you been eating? Yeah, since Brad isn't here today, I figured I'd jump in. <laughs> And, and fill in this section because I tried the new Popeye's fish sandwich, Ben. Uh, it's really good. It is. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that they had a new one. They're, they're. Uh, I guess this was what a couple of years ago. Now they had like the, the big thing where they released a new chicken sandwich, and everybody like lost their minds. Was there uh, a, a, a collective losing of minds over the Popeye's fish sandwich that I missed, or did, is this just a uh, a normal like new addition to their menu? I don't think anybody lost their mind as much as the chicken sandwich. But the chicken sandwich is terrific as well. Like, here's the thing: these are the best fast food sandwiches you can buy, and. This is supposedly a limited time only item because of Lent. Like they, they brought in a fish sandwich for people who can't buy the chicken sandwich. <laughs> and uh, I straight up don't know why you'd get a McDonald's filet fish or a McDonald's chicken sandwich after having Popeye's fish and chicken sandwiches. They are that good. They they actually look like the menu pictures, <laughs> which is something you can't say for most fast food restaurants. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, man. If there's a Popeye's near you, do you want a chicken sandwich or a fish sandwich? I, I think the fish sandwich, it's, it's halibut and slightly spicy. Uh, it is so damn good, and I can't. I, I know we're not supposed to eat fast food. I know fast food is bad, but God damn it, Ben, the fish sandwich at Popeyes. Is well, look, good. I I think Brad would be very proud of you for stepping in uh, and and filling his slot in this in this regard. So I'm I'm glad that you tried it, if for no other reason than just to keep the streak alive for our listeners. Yeah, send emails. Send all emails to Peter uh, if you like the Popeye's fish sandwich. I want I want I want to email him to blow up when people talk about fish sandwiches. <laughs> Not to know why. 
<laughs> All right. What have you been playing, Jacob? Yeah, like I said earlier, I've been playing a lot of video games uh, to fill in the gaping hole. It's been my life for the past few weeks. And I played and beat God of War, the 2018 uh, sequel slash reboot of the, uh, I guess by now, classic video game series. And this is a phenomenal game. And if you're like me and you pay $15 a month for the online PlayStation access, you can play video games online. Uh, Sony has a library of like their Sony-produced games to play for free, like great games including like um the last of us and uncharted games and god of war and if you play the original god of war games from the playstation 2 playstation 3 era it's the same character kratos who in those games is a the son of zeus who declares war on the pantheon of greek gods and in the third game kills them all you, you kill all the greek gods across like, a trilogy of games and in the new one 2018 uh he has fled greece he's moved uh to um far north northern europe and he's had a family and a son and uh he ends up pissing off the norse gods <laughs> so the new game is you killing your way through a new pantheon of gods uh but unlike the previous trilogy which was hack and slash very silly very angry teenage angst style kill everything gameplay uh the new god of war is really cinematic and moving and tragic with incredible voice work and character dynamics. The main character is Kratos and his young son, who's always on screen with you. And I was incredibly moved <laughs> by the story of Kratos, this formerly hack and slash idiot video game character, into this really troubled father figure who's who wants best for his son, but does not know how to deliver the best for him. And it's full of witty writing and moving moments, and the entire game is depicted in one shot. I mean, the camera is behind your character in third person, but when it becomes cutscenes, the camera will like rotate or pan away from your character, and then the camera will pan back behind him when it's time to keep playing gameplay. So the game is presented like Alphonse Cuaron shot all of God of War <laughs> in one shot. Uh, and play it had a PlayStation 5 upgrade recently, so if you're on a PS5 like me, it plays like a PS5 game with like steady 60 frames per second and some, some graphical improvements. And I was so impressed by this. I was bowled over by how good God of War was. Uh, ben, have you played this? I feel like it's a game you would really get into. I have not, but I, I've heard good things about it. And now I, I think your review just now has convinced me to pull the trigger on this because I've been looking for the next thing to play. And I love The uh, the Last of Us and, and Uncharted games. And it sounds like this is, it sort of has that emotional heft and combination of like fun gameplay that I, I look for in my video games. I'm not like a, an in-depth gamer, but I love games like that. And this sounds like it, it fits squarely, you know, within those parameters. Yeah, I will say it's a very challenging game. I had reduced difficulty a few times. Uh, in fact, I play, ended up playing most of it on, on easy mode. Uh, but the storytelling was so good and the action so satisfying you on easy mode that like there's... Zero guilt if you feel like, I'm just going to play in the easiest mode and so I can appreciate the characters and storytelling. Uh, like, that's totally fine. Um, I think I, I skipped some of the side quests, but it still took me 30 hours to mainline the, the main story. It's, it's a real, it's a, it's a big game, but I felt like it, it felt genuinely worthwhile. I, I, I loved my time in this world and with these characters. Cool. Um, and you think it's that's a fine jumping on point? Because I've never played any of the previous God of War games. Yes. Um, I'd say maybe watch a YouTube video that recaps the first three games just to get a basic idea of, of you know, you don't have to do that because the game, if you know who Kratos is, then the, then you're a step ahead of some of the characters. But the game also unveils what you need to know throughout the course of it as other characters learn who he is. Okay. Because he doesn't go around saying, I'm a... I'm a Greek demigod and I, and I killed Zeus and now I'm here. He's very tight lipped and he's kind of revealed over the course of the game. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, um, 
really all you gotta know um vengeful son of zeus um killed all the greek gods and had a real bad time in greece and now he's trying to start over in 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 north mythology north mythology and they and the, and the new gods pick the wrong guy to fight with that's all you gotta know okay all right so that's god of war and then you've been uh, getting back into tabletop space a little bit yeah um mondo sent me their new board game dream crush and it's a hard game to recommend entirely right now because it's a very very social game you want to play with all your friends you know gathered in a big room laughing um but i'm going to recommend it anyway because i, I played with a with, 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 uh, with a much smaller group <laughs> naturally me and my wife and it's really clever and really fun and i can't wait to play it with with my friends it is essentially a party game where you have a giant deck of potential partners of, of dates of boyfriends and girlfriends and you lay out three of them and it's all like 80s aesthetic. The entire game has a neon colors and graphic design. It's from 1985. And everybody's dressed in 80s fashions. And these three characters are your dream crushes. When like you get an initial reaction, when you look at them, like, oh, this guy is dressed silly. Or this guy is dressed really slick. Then over the course of the game, other cards are laid out that uh, randomize and add personality traits or background. Like this guy volunteers at a clinic. This guy does cosplay. Uh, this guy believes in astrology. And those are, uh, but sometimes they're much sillier or more specific. Sometimes, sometimes very standard. Sometimes they're increasingly bizarre, and sometimes they're incredibly mundane. And, and the fun is seeing how they mix and match. And over the course of five rounds, you learn more about these people and end up becoming, in front of your very eyes, sort of fleshed out into full-fledged human beings, going from like the initial, um, the initial idea of attraction or not to, um, you know, being people you feel like you kind of weirdly know. And the gameplay is you have to guess who the people at the table are, are crushing on each round based on what's revealed. You you secretly write down who you think the person in the table is crushing on. And you get points if you guess correctly. And there's not much gameplay to it. It's, the rules are very simple. It's just reveal more truths about these people. And I wish the rulebook emphasized this more because since there's not a strong gameplay hook, it's a game about conversations. It's a game about it's like, oh, why was this a turnoff for you? Oh, you like that guy this time? Why? Oh, why, why is she doing it for you? And as a conversation starter, if it's a game for you and your family or friends who you're playing with, to like be able to openly talk about attraction and dating and share stories and like, oh, I can't go with that guy because I one time had this situation happen on a date. Uh, it's in, we, My wife and I laughed so much playing it. We had such a great time. We, had, we bonded over it in a really fun way. And with the right group, with a group who's going to be we're going to be super into it, ask questions and not just put the cards down, write down and guess, but actually like really spend time emphasizing why they made their choices and interrogating each other. A uh, dream crush it has the potential to be like a really amazing party game with the right people. Uh, it looks great. It plays great. Each round plays, you know, each game plays like, you know, 20, 25 minutes. If you stretch it out and, you know, actually have the conversations, but yeah, um, Mondo's board game output has been hit and miss, uh, but dream crush for me is a, total winner it looks great the opponent quality is great i love the fact that all the date character cards are actual photographs of people like not like just like sketches or are they went out and photographed hundreds of people for this massive deck of of um of uh potential dates and it's really inclusive like uh it's men and women and so play with people who are willing to you know uh have some fun uh and, mm-hmm. and feel inclusive about how they do it but that's dream crush i think it's a, if this sounds appealing if you have the, if you have if this sounds appealing at all, if you have the right group for this, uh, Dream Crush is very much worth your time. But like I said, maybe it's best saved for post-pandemic times. Yeah. 
Excellent. All right. Uh, well, you can find, uh, we have three articles that I'll, I'll drop in, in our uh, show notes here if you want to, to read um, HG's review, or I'm sorry, interview with uh, Kelly Marie Tran and read her Ride of the Last Dragon review or Chris's WandaVision piece. You can do that. Uh, Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, mailbag, topics and fish sandwich reactions to peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you all tomorrow. Oh, should I do the, should I do the drug book? Should, <laughs> I kept it open just in case. Oh, I, I, I didn't know. I wasn't ready. Let me, um, let me, let me grab that. <laughs> oh. See, you, uh, you don't have to do the drug book. To, okay, let's see. Um, <laughs> We're up the page. Dressed and undressed. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> this was a mistake. Ben, his gowns are cut to C level. C spelled S-E-E. Ah, okay. All right. Uh, HT, give her an inch and she'll soon wear it for a dress. Ah. <laughs> Chris, he wears a $200 gown, but his heart isn't in it. It's true. <laughs>